And now I will introduce today's guest. Don Tapscott is one of the world's leading authorities on business strategy. But it's a different kind of business strategy with a clear 21st century focus. Dawn has devoted his life to studying how profoundly information technology is changing not just business processes and functions, but how the entire world thinks, makes decisions, and assigns value to things. His insight and expertise has earned him an international reputation and the gratitude of thousands of business leaders all over the world. We have come to rely on him to interpret this new way of working and interacting one that's taking hold too quickly for most of us to really grasp and fully comprehend. Dawn is chairman of Engineera, a business innovation company based in Texas. Engineera works with the world's largest and most forward-thinking companies, helping them get prepared to do business by a whole new set of rules. He's also an adjunct professor at the J.L. Rotman School of Business here at the University of Toronto helping to train some of Canada's most promising business leaders of tomorrow. He has written or co-written 13 books. His definitive work, Wikonomics, How Mass Collaboration Changes Everything, was a worldwide bestseller in 2007 and has been translated into 22 languages. In Wikonomics, Dawn describes the findings of one of the largest investigations of strategy and management ever undertaken. It began as an attempt to understand the changing nature of the corporation and how competition will figure in the emerging networked economy. What Don and his researchers discovered went far beyond that. As the world becomes increasingly wired, it seems a new social order is emerging. It's one in which the knowledge, resources, and computing power of billions of people is organizing itself into a massive collective force. It's happening without a prescribed direction, without an organized plan, and without even a manager to run it. Interconnected and orchestrated through blogs, wikis, chat rooms, peer-to-peer -peer networks, and personal broadcasting, the web is becoming the first global platform in history for all-out collaboration by anyone and everyone on anything and everything. Imagine the possibilities. Think of the implications for battling climate change, disaster and disease, for providing access to learning and education, for giving a voice to those all over the world who are so often kept silent. And as Dawn explains in his latest book, Grown Up Digital, how the net generation is changing the world, we are now encountering the first generation to be raised in a completely wired environment. The first generation better equipped to cope with the real world and the new collaboration economy than their parents. They are what Dawn calls the net generation and they are beginning to enter the workforce. Any company that wants to be able to survive and especially those that want to be able to thrive in the 21st century needs to know how to capitalize and on what the net generation has to offer. Here to tell us how they're changing our world and what we need to know to deal with it, and then and to, to deal with it and them, is renowned author, educator, and contemporary thinker Dawn Tapscott.
Well, thank you very much for that um, thoughtful and too kind uh, introduction, Noella. I'm delighted to be here and I'd like to thank the Canadian Club for hosting uh, this event. I think this is the third or fourth time that the Canadian Club has provided a forum for me to talk about a new book that I've written and I'm very grateful. I'd also like to uh, acknowledge and thank the distinguished uh, head table and many of them who are uh, friends and each in their own way are, are doing some wonderful work and to thank you for coming out. I began studying young people about 16 or 17 years ago as a generation uh, when I noticed how my own kids were effortlessly able to use all this sophisticated technology. And at first I thought, my children are prodigies. <laughs> and, um, but then I noticed that all their friends were like them and so that was a bad theory. <clears throat> so I started working with about 300 kids and in 1997 I wrote a book called Growing Up Digital. Uh, flash forward to today, these kids are coming into the workforce, the marketplace, and into society. And I'm convinced that there's no more powerful force to change every institution than a new generation of digital natives who think differently. Uh, exhibit A, they just elected their first president of the United States. Now, let me begin with a story about a youngster that will probably unsettle you, but it's a good way to set us up. <clears throat> it's a youngster that I talk about in Growing Up Digital. His name is Joe O'Shea. And I met him one day in June of last year when I was invited by the uh, management and board of Florida State University to come and have an extended lunch with them. And basically they were picking my brain for a couple hours about what the 21st century university would look like. Because they have a big billion dollar fundraise and they want to position themselves as the first 21st century learning institution. So I gave my views, which some of you know because I've written about this over the years, that the model of pedagogy that we have right now is a one-way, one-size-fits-all, teacher-focused model. It's based on the lecture and it's completely inappropriate for a new generation that's grown up interacting and collaborating. And that we need to reinvent pedagogy and reinvent the university if we're going to keep these institutions alive and thriving. So one of the deans turned to a 22-year-old named Joe O'Shea, and uh, who they'd invited to the meeting, and said, Joe, what do you think? And Joe said, well, this is resonating with me. I think that as a generation, we do learn differently. And the dean says, what do you mean? And Joe said, well, for example, I don't read books. And the look around the room was sort of, <laughs> the look in this room. Um, he said, I get my information from the web and I'm pretty good at figuring out what's true and what's BS. If I need to know what's in a book, I can go to Google Books and I can get any chapter of a book and I'm good at figuring out what's the right chapter to understand a book. If I have to read a physical book, I don't really read it. I sort of go at it like a website. And. Uh, the dean of the film schools, famous film school at Florida State, turns to the, the little group there around the table and says, well, I don't know if this is really interesting and exciting or if this means the end of civilization. <laughs> <clears throat> so we had this amazing conversation. It raised a whole bunch of really profound ideas about learning and the university and so on. 
And I uh, had a charter plane for the day, and Joe was going to the same city I was going, so I said, hitch a ride with me. I want to get to know you. And uh, so I spent a few hours with him and ended up interviewing him and getting all kinds of great insights uh, for my book. So I asked him, tell me about yourself. What kind of student are you? He says, I'm a good student. I said, how good? He says, well, I've always had A's. I said, um, do you do anything else at the university? He says, yeah, I'm the president of the Students' Council. And I said, wow, that's a big job. And he says, yeah, I'm on 18 uh, committees, and I chair six of them, and I have a $12 million budget. <laughs> and I said, gee, uh, you do anything else? He says, yeah, I play intramural sports and, and stuff like that. I, I guess the biggest thing that's kept me busy over the last while is my girlfriend's from New Orleans, and when Katrina hit, uh, we went down there to see if we could help out. We found there was no health care clinic in the big devastated area, the Ninth Ward, so I set one up. And I said, what do you mean you set one up? He says, if you have the internet, you can do anything. You need an air conditioner, you can get an air conditioner. I said, that's great. Is, was it effective? He says, oh yeah, it's still functioning. It sees, sees 9,000 patients a year. It's called the Ninth Ward Health Care Clinic. Oh, that's cool. You do anything else? He says, yeah, me and a couple of friends have uh, created the uh, Global Peace Exchange. Uh, we have 70 countries signed up, and we're organizing a big summit of the heads of state uh, of, of the big countries in the world. And um, I said, wow. Um, I said, tell me about your family. And he sighs. And he said, well, it's a sad thing, actually, because both my parents passed away this year. And I said, I'm so sorry. Joe, and he said, yeah, and, and it's, it's tough because uh, I'm the eldest of, uh, of the siblings, and they live in a different city, so it's sort of my job to keep the family together. I said, gee, how do you do that? He says, well, I, t I take the whole family on World of Warcraft missions and uh, on the web, and we go and do missions together, and that kind of keeps us together. And I said, oh. Um, I said, <clears throat> I said, what are, you doing what are you doing next year? He says, oh, it's great. I'm going to school in, in, in London, England. I'm so excited because I'm going to get access to the British health care system. And uh, he knows all about the British health care system. He said, we never went to a doctor. I had a poor family. And uh, it's going to be so great to have <laughs> health care. And we get into this amazing discussion. He is deeply knowledgeable about many things. We're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and Plato's views about pedagogy and so on. He doesn't read books. So I said, what are you doing um, in England? He says, I'm taking a master's degree in philosophy. I said, wow, uh, what, what university? I figure he's going to say the you know, school of Southwick. Something. He says, Oxford. <laughs> Oxford and Cambridge would be the two hardest places to get into in the world to do a master's of philosophy. I said, well, that's great, Joe. Did, have you got any financial aid? He says, yeah, it's fabulous. I got a full scholarship. I said, well, great, where did that come from? He says, it's called a Rhodes Scholarship. <laughs> the only Rhodes Scholar from Northeast Florida in 2008 doesn't read books. Bob Dylan, there's something going on here and you don't know what it is. He's as knowledgeable about what's in books as anybody I've ever met. Now, I think this generation has enormously positive characteristics and that we fear what we don't understand. 
and that there's a profound change that's taking place in terms of how people process information, how they think, and in fact, what their brains are like. And my positive view is not a widely, wild, widely held view. Um, if you read a lot of the popular press and a lot of the books that are out this day, you get a, uh, these days, you get a negative view of this generation. Example, a book called The Dumbest Generation came out last year. How the digital age stupefies young Americans and jeopardizes our future. An English professor named Mark Berline says, don't trust anyone under 30. There's a book by Jean Twenge called Generation Me. We've created a little uh, a generation, uh, sorry, a little army of narcissists, and all they care about is themselves, and their YouTube, and their MySpace, and their Facebook, and they don't give a damn in society. Young people are said to be net addicted, glued to the screen, losing their social skills. Robert Bly in The Sibling Society says, the internet is eating the neocortex of youth today. They're a generation that's coddled and they mooch off their parents and they move home after uni university. They steal intellectual property without consideration of the legitimate rights of others. You know something? If this stereotype is true, there is no hope. Because when you think about the problems that my generation is handing over to them, the world is a troubled place. Well, the good news is <clears throat> that this cynical view of young people today has a big problem. It's not supported by data and is therefore wrong. So let me share some data with you and go on to draw some conclusions about what all this might mean for you. First of all, we should care a lot in Canada because this is the biggest generation ever. It's the baby boom echo. There are 7.8 million boomers in Canada and their children are 8 million young people. So the echo is louder than the original boom. But we don't understand this. We talk about the aging of the population in Canada. I'm not sure that's a good term. The population's not just aging, it's bifurcating. If we understood this, we'd know why the schools are in crisis, for example. Same thing in the United States. You know, in the U.S., the last eight years, the period of the great darkness, um, <laughs> We've been saying, the schools are in crisis. Yeah, I know, what should we do? I don't know, why don't we cut back on funding for education? Maybe that'll help. And then if kids do bad on tests, and we'll test them a lot more, then we'll take even more funding away. Um, you know, we, we don't understand the basic demographics. And around the world, this is a massive generation. Biggest generation ever. So on the basis of their demographic muscle, they will dominate the 21st century. But to me, what makes them a real force for change is not just their size. This is the first generation to come of age in the digital age. They're bathed in bits. Computers, the internet, interactive technologies are part of the experience of youth. I'm a digital immigrant. They're digital natives. And time online for this generation when they're growing up is not taken away from hanging out with your friends, learning the piano, talking to your parents, or doing your homework. Time online is taken away from television. The baby boomers growing up watch 24 hours a week of TV. These kids watch a lot less TV, and they watch it differently. 
they come home and they turn on their computer and they're in three different windows and they're listening to an MP3 file and talking to their friend, more likely texting uh, their friends. You and I use telephones to talk. Um, <clears throat> and uh, they got uh, a video game going and oh yeah, they're doing their homework at the same time. And in the background, the TV may, may be going on, but it's sort of like ambient media, the television. It's like Muzak. And when they're online, what are they doing? Well, rather than being the passive recipients of somebody's video, they're reading and thinking and organizing and composing their thoughts and telling their stories and authenticating and even with video games having to remember things and develop strategies. This is changing brain development. There are two critical periods of brain development. The first is zero to three, and a great Canadian, Fraser Mustard, has been the leader in explaining this to the world. That period is not affected so much by the digital world. When a kid is 18 months old, they shouldn't be online. They should be knowing what a puppy feels like and uh, being loved by their parents and, and so on. But the second critical period is called extended adolescence, eight to 18. And after your DNA, how you spend your time is the most important variable determining what your brain is like. And if you spend your time 24 hours a week watching television, you get a certain kind of brain. This is, this is not about brain plasticity. Everybody's brain can change. I'm talking about the building of the brain and its synap basic synaptic connections. Conversely, if you spend your time similar amount of time thinking and organizing and being the active handler and manipulator of information, collaborator, that changes your brain as well. Now, I'll be honest, there's a lot that we don't know about the brain, but I worked with a number of brain scientists. There's a $4 million research project behind this book. And there are at least eight or nine parts of brain function that are changed fundamentally by this. Let me just give you the, this whole thing about how you process and interact with information. How can, how can it be that your teenager, your university student, is, can do seven things at once and still get A's? I can't even listen to music and check my email at the same time. Well, it turns out they're not multitasking. They have better switching abilities and they have better active working memory. So it looks like they're doing seven things at once, but they're not. So here we have a generation that has, that thinks differently. Some people have said, well, Don, youth are always different. This is not a generational difference, it's just a life stage difference. And then like the baby boomers, when they get older, they'll be like their parents and they'll vote for George Bush. <laughs> well, actually, that view is wrong. In the United States, the political party that you, um, first to sign up with carries with you throughout your life. The boomers um, overall did not vote for, uh, for George Bush. A lot of them who were uh, initially conservative continued that. But this is not a life stage difference and the reason is that these kids have different brains and those brains are gonna keep with them for the rest of their lives. Now, well, isn't all this making them stupid? Well, the only measure that we have of intelligence is IQ, and it's been going up year over year for many years. What other measures do we have? 
Uh, university graduates are at an all-time high. Standards to get into university are at an all-time high. SAT scores should have crashed. When I was a kid, it was only the smartest kids from the elite schools that did the SAT. Now everybody does. The scores have gone up or held their own. So this is not the, smart, the dumbest generation. Arguably, it's the smartest generation. Now there's a, a complexity here that I'll share with you. In Canada and the United States, for example, the top third of this generation is spectacular. They're the smartest kids ever. They're coming out of university totally equipped for a new global knowledge economy and for lifelong learning. The middle third are doing pretty well compared to previous generations, and the bottom third are dropping out of school, including in Canada, where 70% of high school students graduate. Should we blame the internet for this? Well, let's look in the US. Teachers last 5.1 years. They're underpaid. Um, class size is 40. The, the bottom third comes to school hungry. Um, they come to school, most of them, from families that are broken up. And the mom's working two jobs. He, she hardly has time to feed the kids, let alone to be working and nourishing their, 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 their minds. There are real problems. We have an old model of pedagogy that's inappropriate for a generation. There are real problems that are causing this one-third to be failing. And to blame the internet is not helpful. It's like blaming the library for ignorance. The internet is not the problem here. As it turns out, and you'll see in a second, it's central to the solution. Now there's another thing that's happening <clears throat> here as well. This is the first time in human history when children are an authority about something really important. Think about that one. When I was 11, I was an authority on model trains. Today, the 11-year-old at the breakfast table is an authority on this digital revolution that's changing business, commerce, government, learning, publishing, entertainment, every institution in society. In the 60s, we had a generation gap big differences between kids and parents over values, lifestyle, and so on. That doesn't exist all much today. Kids and parents get along pretty well. Look at your iPod and your kid's iPod. There's overlap. My parents didn't even like the Beatles, you know, <laughs> let alone the Rolling Stone or the Doors, you know, or something like that. What we have today is what I call the generation lap, where kids are lapping their parents on the info track. And if you have a teenager in your house, you know what I'm talking about. Who does the systems administration in your home? <laughs> this is a perfect combination for fear. You have a new generation, biggest ever, and we've always been cynical about youth. You go back to Aristotle and he says young people today are lazy and they're not focused and they have bad manners and they don't listen to their parents and they're dumb. Um, but you combine that with the fact that this generation knows more about the most important innovation that's transforming every institution and society. The kids know more than their parents. The students know more than their teachers. The new employees know more than their managers in the workforce. The new citizens know more about how people should collaborate, maybe what government and democracy should be like than their elected leaders and politicians. This is a formula for fear, and we fear what we don't understand. Now, of course, Oh yeah, by the way, on, on this other stuff, they don't give a damn. 
high school and uh, university volunteering is, is at an all-time high in Canada and the United States, and civic action has become political action in the U.S. And if you watched uh, the inauguration day with Barack Obama, remember he, he had to dutifully get up and speak to these 10 different balls. The one that he got really animated at was the youth ball. And he basically said, thank you. You created a movement that brought me to power. And he's right. And now, of course, that's changing not just the way you win elections, it's changing the way you rule. Yesterday, um, I got an email from one of his uh, senior staff saying, we're going to continue this movement and because big battles are shaping up in America. And he understands that a social movement is going to be required to bring about profound change in the United States. Now, that political action has not yet happened in Canada. Why not? Well, we don't yet see a Barack Obama, um, but, and also we haven't had a, a George Bush. Um, <laughs> this would be the, one of the legacies of, of uh, George W. Bush is that he will, probably unintended, but that he will have mobilized an entire generation to care about government and who's in power. <laughs> now, there are real problems, of course. Um, I don't want to gloss this over totally. The, there's, there is a digital divide. Um, the, the, there are dangers in the home of, uh, uh, from pornography and from, from predators. We've got uh, the biggest concern in my mind is privacy. We have an entire generation giving away their privacy irrevocably online. Just because you're an authority on something really important doesn't mean that you're an authority on everything. And some things take experience to understand. And privacy is one of those. You can't give away too much of your personal information because it will come back to haunt you. Not just if you're going to run for politics later, but right now there are probably tens of thousands of young people who are not getting that job they wanted because their employers are doing diligence on a, with a Facebook check. And in the U.S., you've got a, you're at a kegger, underage drinking, that can be grounds for saying you're not going to come and work for our company. So there is a dark side, but it's not the one that everybody raises. This is a generation with a very strong sense of values, and they care a lot. And they have enormous capability. We've got to work with that bottom third, but the Internet is not the problem. Now, here they are. Biggest generation ever, at their fingertips, the most powerful tool ever for finding out what's going on, for collaborating, for organizing collective responses to things. This is a big force for change. So let me just tell you a little story to set up my close. It was a couple of years ago at Christmas, and I gave my son Alex, who was 20 at the time. He was a junior uh, in a third year in uh, a little school in the United States. And um, I gave him an advanced copy of Wikinomics, my penultimate book, and he said, thanks, Dad. He went off, started reading it, came back a couple hours later and said, hey, Dad, this is a good book, sort of like he's surprised or something. <laughs> but um, he said, I think I'm going to create a Facebook community. And I said, can I watch? Fifteen minutes later, he set up the Wikinomics community on Facebook. Another fifteen minutes later, he has six members. By the time reading Turkey on Christmas night, he has 130 members excuse me, in seven countries, seven regional coordinators, a president, secretary, and chief information officer. He sent out a PDF of the first two chapters of the book. 
I got kids writing back in saying, uh, Mr. Tapscott, we found errors in your book. <laughs> and, um, and before I'm eating turkey, the community is placing demands on me. One kid writes in and says, so how exactly is Mr. Tapscott going to be contributing to our community? And it's like, <laughs> what's going on here? Two words, self-organization. Self-organization has been around throughout human history. Language was developed through self-organization. There was no central committee of the English language that said this will be called paper. It just kind of happened. Government was a function of self-organization, as was science. But what used to take place over millennia or centuries can now happen in years or weeks or on a single Christmas day. I never could have created a community of 130 people in seven countries when I was 20 regardless of what I did. So let me close by saying, as they come into every institution, they're a huge force for change. In their culture is the new culture of work. It's a culture of collaboration and of innovation. And if we listen to them, they will help us build high-performance organizations. We don't listen to them. We do the opposite. We ban their tools, like banning Facebook. So I asked one um, executive, what was the effect of banning Facebook in your organization? He said, everyone went to MySpace. <laughs> we do the opposite of what we should be doing. In the marketplace, we think that traditional approaches to marketing will be effective. Well, 62% of the television advertisements uh, uh, where a TV is on, where these kids are looking at the TV, they're cutting out the ads 62% of the time. You know that old saw, half of my ads don't work, I just don't know which half? Well, I can guarantee the 62% that they never see don't work. So our entire approach to marketing and to media and to advertising is wasted on the most influential generation of consumers ever. In the, in the universities, the big thing for students, the smartest students today, is to get an A without having ever gone to a lecture. They are bypassing our institutions of learning. And in government, it's the same thing. You know, imagine if uh, Barack Obama stood up after his election and said to 10 million young people, thanks a lot for getting me elected. That was really great. Now you go be passive for four years. And then we'll get to do it all over again. This is a generation that's grown up interacting. I grew up being a passive recipient of TV. They want to be engaged. This is going to place huge demands and opportunities on our models of governance and of democracy. So this is a time of, of great peril in the world, but it's also a time of great opportunity. And I'm enormously optimistic about this generation, that if we do the right thing, if we listen to them, if we engage them, if we help them understand those things that only experience provides, then maybe this smaller world that they inherit will be a better one. Thank you very much. A few questions. Okay, hopefully I can read them. Yeah. How can an employer create a work environment to utilize the net generation's talents? 
Great. The next generation, not next generation. Okay, well that's a great question. Um, how do we think about talent? You recruit, you compensate, you train, you supervise and manage, and you retain talent. Each of those is wrong. You don't recruit them in a traditional sense. Using advertising for recruiting? Better get a big pile of money and have a big fire of the money. It would be more effective. Okay? You need to get to them in their social networks and build relationships with them, including at an early age. And by the time they're ready to work for your company, you know about them and they've maybe even collaborated with you. Don't recruit. Initiate and engage. Secondly, don't compensate in a traditional sense. Money is number four. Number one thing for the, this top third coming out of university is they want to do meaningful work and meet interesting people. When I was a kid and I graduated, the big thing was to work for IBM in the 80s, to work for Michael Milken. In the 90s, it was to work for a dot-com. Today, the number one choice of undergraduates from Harvard is to go to Teach America. Don't, uh, number two thing they want is to learn. Number three is to have fun. Money's number four. So our, our approaches to compensation are wrong. Train them. Well, work and learning are the same activity. It's a knowledge economy. Why not increase the learning component of work? The training department of my company, Engineera, is the following. Everyone must blog. It forces you to think about the world and to learn and to collaborate. That's our training department. Supervise. Well, that's a good one. These kids are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and they come into the workforce, and they have this whole new culture, and we stick them in a cubicle and treat them like Dilbert and take away their tools. <laughs> they have better tools at their fingertips than exist in the most sophisticated Canadian companies. So what do we do? We take them away and ban them. Don't manage and supervise them. Create a new collaborative environment. And as for retention, there's a youngster named Dennis Hancock. Um, I hired him a year and a half ago. He was 29 years old. Uh, it's the fourth time I've hired him. <laughs> and he went back to school in the fall to do an MBA. I will have hired Dennis five times before he's 31 years old. Um, I'm hardly retaining human capital like, I don't know, you retain fluids or something like that. <laughs> I'm building an alumni network here. Talent does not have to be inside your boundaries. It can be outside. I think if we listen to them, we will understand that most of what we know about management and about talent is wrong and needs to be rethought. Thank you, Don. Okay, the flip side of that, how do we as parents encourage these students' net generation? How do we relate to them? Well, the, there have been some big changes in the family. The family that I grew up in, if I had a chart here, Blackboard, I'd show you the org chart of the, of the baby boomer family. Mom reported to dad and the kids reported to mom. And uh, it was called Father's Knows, Father Knows Best. It was actually a TV show that enc encapsulated this org chart. The org chart today well, looks more like this. Your family, the kids in the middle, parents and step-parents around the outside, and then you've got grandparents. Now they're involved as well. So the world has changed, and think about this. When, when I was a kid, it was pretty simple being a parent. I mean, you got your values in the church, 
Um, there, was, there were no blackberries to be thinking about checking at the dinner table. We had a conversation at the dinner table. Uh, when dad came home, he didn't have to wonder, should I go check my email or should I hang out with my kids? Um, there was no porn. I was raised in Aurelia. I suppose I could have, I could have got a, I probably could have got a Playboy in the local store, but if I bought one, the shopkeeper would have called my mom and told her. So, so the world has become a lot more complicated today. And I think that we need to design our families. In some ways, design our own lives. You know, in our family, we had to come to grips with this stuff early. We created a social contract with the kids. Uh, Alex got into video games a lot, so we did a deal with him. Only so much, and it's a function of you got to be doing other stuff, and you got to be, um, you know, getting good, good grades at, at school. On porn, we did a deal on that. Rather than using blocking software, or the ways that most people approach porn, oh, put the family computer in an open area where you can see what the kids are doing. Well, that's going to help keep your 14-year-old boy uh, off porn, you know. Did anyone notice he's also got a computer in his pocket and he'll see about f 10 other computers throughout the day as he, he travels around? If you don't like porn, job number one is to talk to your kids about porn. But rather than, again, we do the opposite of what we should do. Rather than using this as a wonderful opportunity to open up the bandwidth in the family and to talk about real issues and values and to build closer relationships, we fear what we don't understand. And fear gets in the way of of love, and it gets in the way of doing the right thing. Then we, 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 we mistrust our kids, and, and, and we, we try and use completely ineffective techniques to, to protect them rather than doing the things that, that are required. So in the book, I call for the creation of a new kind of model of the family. I called it an open family. And one of my big recommendations was bring back the family dinner. Um, and I think that these kids, as they become parents, are, I'm optimistic they'll be great parents because they've grown up knowing what they could get away with and they're going to be a lot smarter as parents of a, of a new generation of digital youngsters. Thank you, Tim. What do you think about Richard Florida's current research on creativity? How can we foster creativity in the digital age? Well, I think Richard Florida's um, done a super job um, with his work around the creative class and I think that it's controversial but I think it's uh, just full of, uh, of very profound ideas that are relevant, uh, not just to cities, but to our, to our institutions. And the, the good news here about this new generation is that one of the, the main uh, drivers for this generation, or main norms, as I call them, is innovation. When I was a kid in Aurelia, we had the seven of us would get in the family station wagon every August and dutifully drive to Toronto to go to the CNE to see this year's innovation. Wow, an avocado-colored fridge with an ice cube maker. Cool. Um, the pace of innovation was glacial. But now, the pace of innovation, they want the new whatever, not because the old one isn't cool. The new one does all this stuff that the one they had six months ago doesn't do. So this is a generation that's grown up um, immersed in a culture of, of uh, innovation and increasingly of, of creativity. And I think that that's really part of their, their DNA and we can be very optimistic. Okay. Do you foresee the current economic environment accelerating the digital slash knowledge economy? 
Uh, the answer is yes. Um, without giving away too much, <laughs> uh, this is the title of my next book, <laughs> but, or the topic. The work, working title of the book is Rebuilding the World. And um, arguably, all of our institutions, financial services, uh, would be a case in point, have come to the end of their life cycle. And that tinkering with these institutions, and I've mentioned a number of them today, is not really what's required. We do need a fundamental change, and we do need to rebuild the world. Among other things, we have a little problem called climate change, where we need to reindustrialize the planet and create a new global energy grid. And we have, what, 30 years? I was at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and Bill Clinton uh, said to one of the groups there, uh, if we reduce carbon emissions by 80% in the year 2050, it'll take a 1,000 years for the planet to cool down. And in the interim, a lot of bad stuff is going to happen. Um, according to Al Gore, there's a part of the world uh, with a billion um, uh, and a half people that in the next 20 years will lose half of their water supply. So this is, um, this is a huge problem, basically, that, that, that we have. And, and, and the status quo in all of these institutions is, is not really cutting it. So the current financial crisis is really a burning platform that's causing us to look fundamentally. Sure, you've got to cut back, but hunkering down, while necessary, is insufficient. Now is the time for us to examine in, in fundamental ways what these institutions are, how they work, what their operating model is, whether it's the corporation or the university or, or, or the media that's collapsing right now, our entertainment systems, the music industry is, is, uh, is collapsing. Now's the time to do some, some deep investigation. And you couple in with that, you have a whole new generation that wants something different. And all this new digital technology and media for them is like the air. And they're a generation with a strong set of values and a whole culture that leads us, is pushing us to think about some new models. So, in the middle of all this darkness and depression uh, of this awful situation that we're in, I can see glimmers of, uh, of, of hope for some uh, very profound change. And one thing for sure is those companies that dig deep and go beyond cost cutting to figure out you know, wh what's our new operating model for the 21st century will be the ones that are successful. Thanks. And our last question from our student table. What is your opinion on networking, i.e. Facebook, MySpace, um, I love networking, <laughs> and um, I'd say uh, this is a good good way to end. Actually, um, I'll, and I'll speak to you, young people, if it's okay that the rest can listen in on this. Um, it's a wonderful thing, uh, you know. Facebook is a fa fabulous innovation, as are our social networks, but they need to be. Uh, integrated into your life in a way that's productive and that's effective. You got to protect your privacy. If you don't have your privacy settings right on Facebook, right after school today, go home and get this fixed. Because there are certain very close friends and members of your family that you want to share certain information with and other people you don't know so well, you should be much more restrictive and you should never be publishing photos of yourself to the entire 
world on Facebook. So go and fix that. Um, secondly, um, you're going to come into the workforce and you're not going to like what you see. And in your culture is a new way of operating a company and this will be frustrating for you. I, I ask you, uh, hang in there a bit, okay? Today, young people, by the time they're 27, they're on the third job. And if our institutions don't change, we'll see a generation of entrepreneurs, uh, 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 basically. Hang in there. It's worth it to try and change these institutions. And if you become a leader for change, um, then, then you'll become an important and influential uh, person. I would say um, have balance in your life. You know, there's a role for all this digital world. There's also a role for hanging out with your, your parents and um, work hard at school. Uh, don't just take a technical course because you think that this is a big technical world. Uh, liberal arts graduate or undergraduate degree is a great way to equip yourself for lifelong learning in a knowledge economy where it's not what you know when you graduate, it's your capacity to think and to solve problems and communicate and put things in context. And finally, uh, when you hear all this negative stuff about your generation, uh, be cool because it's not about you. You see, what's going on here? It's got nothing to do with whether or not you guys are a great generation or not. This is all about power. And it's about, for example, professors that are wondering why their students are not showing up at their lectures and being fascinated by their ideas. Well, there are new sources of knowledge now that are replacing these traditional sources. This is about who gets to control the dissemination of information and the communication of knowledge. And throughout our society, we have old institutions that are threatened. And that's why you get all this negative stuff about you guys. So take it with a grain of salt, hang in there, and, um, and don't give up. Because uh, sure, we need you to go out and be successful and to make lots of money or do whatever you want to do, follow your dream. But we need more than that. Uh, we need you and your generation to fix this world because the situation that we've left for you is not a positive one. So uh, please uh, go beyond just building a, a successful career and be a good citizen because uh, the 21st century needs it. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Don. I would now like to call on Alison Lode, director of the Canadian Club, to thank Don. Thank you, Noella. Um, Don, when I was listening to your talk, I was consciously aware that my age has me sort of teetering precariously on the upper edge of the, of the net generation. Um, but it also reminded me of a quip that Mae West once made, which is that we're never too old to become younger. Um, she might have meant something else, but I was very encouraged that... Uh, <laughs> she probably meant something else. Um, but I was, I was very encouraged that if we all embody the spirit of Joe O'Shea and his peers, that there's a good future ahead for all of us. 
Uh, so thank you very much for being here, um, and also for your work, which I think is helping us all nudge forward to a more positive future. Um, furthermore, your contributions on the world stage, both through your research and your, and your consulting work, I think make us all as Canadians or as residents of this country very proud. So thank you for that. Uh, it really is an honour to have you here at the Canadian Club. Um, so thank you, and thank you to everyone in the audience, and in particular the students, uh, for being here today. Thank you, Alison, and thank you again, Mr. Tapscott, and thank you all to all of our guests for coming today. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you.